Father, thank you for that truth that one day it will be indeed true for all time that, that we'll run into your arms and it will not end. It will, it will never end. You will reign. Father, help us look forward to that day as we deal with the troubles of our own life and the troubles all around us in our world. Help us be motivated by that day and give us strength and peace through it, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey gang, go ahead and be seated. Welcome to Epiphany. Good to have you here tonight. So, uh, tonight we are continuing our series through Ecclesiastes, and we're at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, uh, looking at verses 10 through 17 tonight. Here's how it reads. It says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Now, incidentally, just so you know, in verse 10, it sounds at first like he might be almost celebrating the fact that the wicked were buried. But in fact, he's actually pointing out that this is something that didn't make sense. It wasn't fair because the wicked shouldn't have had a proper burial. This is his lament back at that time. But he says, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Well, and I commend joy for man and has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Here ends the reading of God's word. Well, I suppose our natural inclination is to believe, to some extent, or at least to hope, in this world, that as long as we play by the rules, do everything right, do good to others, that we can have a pretty confident sense that life is going to end up working out okay for us. And on the flip side, we also want to believe that those who don't do the right thing, who don't play by the rules, who aren't good to others, will not necessarily have the best life. That at least they'll face some consequences for it. That they'll be punished for their unjust ways. In other words, you know, good guys win, bad guys lose. This is the way at least... A ton of movies show it. 
And generally speaking, I think that is a fair assumption. I mean, I, I do think that generally speaking, like if you follow, you know, certain principles that like your life probably has a better chance of working out better if you do it the right way than if you do it the wrong way. But, but as much as that may be true, some of the time, what the writer of Ecclesiastes is bugged about is that it isn't true all of the time. In fact, it's not true enough of the time throughout history that he says it this way in verse 14. This is a vanity. This is meaningless. There's a vanity that takes place on earth. Here's it, here it is. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and reverse. Wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. In other words, bad guys are winning, good guys are losing. And this happens throughout our world, and I don't like it at all, the author says. It's vanity. It makes me believe that there's no sense or purpose or meaning to this world when I see that. And yeah, this does happen in big and small ways every day, right? My kids are convinced that they're victims of injustice on a daily basis when they battle it out with their brothers. And sometimes, I mean, as much as me and their mama try to uh, deal justly with them, sometimes, yeah, I will admit, one of them may have gotten punished for the sins of another. Sometimes you just can't tell. You say, who started it? That's a meaningless question. You know, he did. You know, it's like uh, that Spider-Man meme where they're both pointing at each other. You know, they, they, they're just looking at each other. They're always pointing at each other, and you can never tell. And so it turns out that maybe, yes, an injustice might happen. One gets punished for the sins of the other. We see injustice happen at Trader Joe's in Union Square. I used to see this all the time. I used to shop there every single day. And here's the injustice. Almost every time I was there, somebody would cut in line, and most of the time they'd get away with it. And my fierce sense of justice would just well up within me. But because I'm a pastor, I couldn't fight him with my fist. So I actually have seen it nearly come to blows before when somebody skipped in line there. But, uh, but the point is, you see this. And in the big ways, I mean, for my generation, there are two instances that really stick out of my mind of, of injustice happening that caused a, a rage to, you know, boil over in the society. I, I lived right outside of Los Angeles. I was actually in Los Angeles viewing a Laker game in person uh, with a bunch of friends of mine the day that the Rodney King verdict was announced and the officers were all declared innocent. And that day, due to what so many in that community saw as the injustice of that verdict, there was riots. I remember traveling home and seeing fires ablaze all on the side of the freeway. And I can remember the day that O.J. Simpson was declared innocent. And the same kind of rage boiling over at the injustice that many people thought had taken place. So, so we know what the preacher is talking about. This isn't foreign to us. When he says this, we're like, yes, I've experienced it. So, how does the preacher handle it? The injustice of the world, and what can we learn from his response? Well, first he discusses at least one of the reasons injustice happens. He says in verse 10, uh, or, or verse 11, excuse me, uh, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. 
In other words, what he's saying is that one of the reasons injustice happens on this earth is because it's not punished. The blind eye is turned on the situation. Surely, we know this is true. Sometimes injustice flourishes because it's just not dealt with. It's people allow the corruption to continue, and, and corruption will only grow as long as it's not actually punished. This is true. This last week, there was a new podcast release, like one of these serial podcasts that Gimlet Media does called uh, Conviction. I'd recommend you checking it out. It's really fascinating. It's, I think it's only seven parts, but uh, the story focuses uh, at least partially on a police officer who had gotten away with a, a ton of wrongdoing, a ton of false convictions. And one of the reasons that, of course, the podcast shows this happened is because, I mean, people knew it. I mean, he had a ton of complaints logged against him, vastly more complaints than, than the average officer. I think it's said over the lifetime of a, of a police officer, typically there might be one or two complaints from the public about a specific officer. And this, this particular guy had over 35. I mean, it was just a blatant, blatant. But, but why did it happen? Why was he, why did the injustice continue to take place? Well, because a blind eye was turned to it. I found myself, as I was listening to the show, getting a little uppity. Like, oh, how can this take place? How can this take place? Getting up on my perch, getting all judgy. And then I thought about the ways that I can allow injustice to flourish in my own life and even seemingly insignificant ways. And I was reminded of a quote from an older Lutheran pastor named Martin Niemöller. He lived through World War II in Germany. Initially, he was actually a supporter of the Third Reich, which he later repented of. Ended up becoming one of its most vocal opponents after seeing the way they were behaving, and as a result, uh, spent seven years in a concentration camp. He wrote a famous poem, I'm sure you've heard it, depicting what it looks like to let injustice spread in just the seemingly smaller ways. He said, Quote, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And so it occurs to me that Part of what the writer of Ecclesiastes might be calling us to do is a little introspection here. What might be the things, the injustices around us that we're too afraid to call out or too afraid to talk about, but that if we're silent about, continue to just grow. How that looks, I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't think it's as simple as just posting something on social media, but also I don't think it's merely being silent either. So yeah, one of the reasons injustice happens is because it's not dealt with or ignored. But also the preacher acknowledges, even as that is a reason that's true, there's just a mystery to it. I mean, there really is. There's a head-scratching component to the whole thing. 
He says in verse 17, I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know the mystery. He cannot find it out. And when we can't find it out, well, that spurs on the why question. We've all had the why question. Why God? Why is this injustice happening? And for the most part, the response to the why question is silence. We're not permitted an answer from heaven about it. And yet, it's interesting, uh, modern psychologists have said that, that actually, even if we try to get the answer to the why question, if we did get the answer to the why question, it wouldn't satisfy. It wouldn't necessarily help us. We think it would. We've always thought it would. For example, there's a psychologist and author named Tasha Urick wrote a piece for New York Magazine she says, actually, what would be more helpful when we come across injustice and go through difficulty is to not ask the why question, but to ask the what question. Quote, why questions draw us to our limitations? What questions help us see our potential? In other words, so this injustice comes, what is this for? What am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to learn from this is the kind of question that might be helpful. And this makes sense when I think about the biblical narrative. I mean, I can't help but think of the story of Job. My guess is that a good number of you probably heard the story of Job, uh, maybe read the story of Job. The Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, was based on the story of Job. Here he is, a guy who's faced immense suffering. All his property and his income have gone to waste. Ten kids in a moment are killed by what seemed like a freak accident. And then to add injury to insult, in this case, he ends up with some sort of horrific rash with deep sores all over his body. But the text goes out of his way to tell us he has to scratch with shards of pottery. I mean, just to gross us out, you know. <clears throat> and what follows in the story of Job, I mean, it's, it's over 30 chapters, 38 chapters of this is Job complaining and trying to figure out why this happened. And then his three friends suggesting to him why it happened and striking out the whole time. Now, why do we know he strikes out? Why do we know they strike out? Because God finally shows up and says, shh, y'all don't know what you're talking about. You might not have said y'all, but you get the point. And then we think in chapter 38, when God finally shows up, all right, we're going to be given the explanation for the suffering of Job. We're going to get the answer to the why question. I mean, the author of everything is there. He's gone after all. And to our great disappointment and frustration, God does not give the why question an answer. Instead, what he does, the next few chapters, is remind Job of how awesome and powerful he is and how intimately involved he is with every aspect of his creation. That's what he does. 
As Job searches to find out why, God says, Job, I want to remind you, the waves of the ocean never go further than I want them to on the shore. There is never a bird, Job, that dies. Never anything that drops in this world without me knowing it, without me being involved in the midst. Do you really think, Job, you can fit the answer to the why question in your mind? And what's frankly a little surprising to us is by the end of it, Job does seem to be satisfied. What's the point? Well, the point is that the why question won't satisfy us, but maybe the what behind our circumstances and the injustice just might get us there. Or maybe even better to say, the who that is with us as we suffer injustice. I think the preacher kind of, he's, it's an interesting thing, like right after this passage, in verse 15, he sort of, it's almost like he just throws up his hands as his way of dealing with it. Here's what he says. He's like, listen, I, I can't, it's a mystery. We can't figure it out. So here's what you do. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him through the toil, in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. In other words, I think he's saying, listen, you're not going to be able to figure out the mysteries of the universe and the why of every question. So here's what you need to try and do as best you can. Enjoy the moment. Really enjoy that bite. Really try to enjoy that drink. Instead of trying to figure out the answers to the questions that no one has ever been able to figure out. I know. I know. Easier said than done. But he's probably right. And yet, if we are going to endure the injustice of this world, the preacher does know we need more than that. He can't just say, hey man, you got good food. Figure it out. Now the preacher ultimately says we need something deeper, and that is we need the hope that one day there will be justice. He says in verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well. Very, very important words. It will be well, future, future, future tense with those who fear God. But it will not be well with the wicked. In other words, he wants us to look forward to a day when all will be made right. Yes, in the present, enjoy your food, enjoy your, your drink. But do it with an eye towards what's coming. Because what's coming, the Bible consistently promises is a day where, indeed, he will vanquish all evil and suffering and injustice. The book of Revelation that we read from earlier depicts a world for us, again, of no more tears, no more pain. Somehow, somehow we're shown by the end of the story that God is even able to work through injustice. If you think about the story of Joseph recorded in Genesis chapter 38 through 50, God shows that he's able to accomplish his good purposes even through incredibly difficult circumstances. 
In that Joseph story, his brothers nearly kill him. Instead, they're like, well, let's see if we can get some dough for him. So they sell him into slavery. Later on, he gets framed by a wicked woman. He's thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. He's abandoned there for years with seemingly no hope. If there ever was a victim of injustice, it would be Joseph. And yet, through a string of unlikely circumstances that no one could have predicted after years of suffering, he eventually becomes the vice president of Egypt, essentially. And after years of not seeing his brothers, he finally comes into contact with them, and they are scared to death that he is going to take his revenge out on them. But instead, he ends up saying to them, you meant evil against me. That's true. But God meant it for good. Yeah, we, we, we need to look forward to a day where somehow, somehow or another, God's going to be able to make sense of the injustice that we face. But, maybe, maybe one of you here is thinking in the back of your mind as you're hearing about all this injustice and these unjust people that are getting away with things, maybe you're sitting here thinking to yourself, hold on, I think I'm unjust. I mean, I, the Bible does, after all, say that all people, literally, Romans 3, it literally, literally uses the word to describe all human beings as unjust or unrighteous, same word. Not having feared God the way that the author of Ecclesiastes says. And so what does that mean? Does that mean that we all have nothing to look forward to but the punishment that will one day come? If that's the case, I don't want to look to the future. I don't, because it's not going to be a good day for me. And that's why ultimately, though the author of Ecclesiastes hadn't experienced it then, we know now that in order for us to endure the injustice of this world, we need to have hope in a God who endures injustice on our behalf. The God of the scriptures does not stand far off when injustice seems to be ruling the day. But his answer is to get himself dirty. He endures all of the world's injustice, including yours, on the cross. And the reason he says he does it is because he cares for his creation. He cares for you, though you are not just yourselves. Isn't it so interesting when we read a story or read a passage like this in Ecclesiastes, we immediately find ourselves putting ourselves on the side of the just? We don't even question it. We read it and we're like, yeah, I know a dude who's getting away with the things. And part of what the Ecclesiastes writer is saying is, that's you! That's you! That's me. There was a number of years ago, my uncle, my uncle Bob died very quickly. 
from cancer and my grandfather who at the time was not a believer shared this before maybe with you but the illustration is apt my grandfather was not a believer at the time said why did God allow this in to happen to my son Bobby and there was somebody just a day ago in answer to that question or in response to the question from my grandfather just a day before another preacher as a matter of fact sought to give him an answer and it just infuriated my grandfather because the answer was that was given this is a man understandably trying to figure out why the answer to the why question his answer was well, God must have needed your son more in heaven than he needed him down here. If I had sought to give a reason to my grandfather for why God took Bob, as opposed to any other person on planet Earth at the time, like the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, I would have been speculating about things that I have not been given access to. I just haven't. I do not know. And believe me, it's tempting for us preachers when we walk into situations and people are always asking the question, why? Why the evil? Why the injustice? Why? We want to be able to give the answer. I promise you we want to. We want to. And God has not given it to us. And we're forced to say, I don't know. But that's not all we can say. We can say, as I said to my grandpa, I don't know why God took Bob, but I know why it cannot be. I know why it can't be. It can't be because he doesn't love Bob or us. And the reason I know that is because of the cross of Jesus. Because there I'm shown a God who doesn't Stay away from evil, but endures it. I don't know why God allows the specific injustice to happen that does happen on this earth. I don't. Besides the fact that humanity is just generally plagued with sin and sinners are going to do what sinners do. But I do know he's done something about it in the person of Jesus. And it is because we have a God who doesn't hide from injustice, but endures it and has the power to end it one day, that we can say with the great writer Dostoevsky, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify somehow what has happened. Or maybe to quote the Lord of the Rings in a much simpler statement, one day, everything said will come untrue. Let's pray.
Father, this is both a message in which we are forced, on the one hand, to acknowledge our own guilt, but on the other hand, we're still left seeing the injustice perpetrated around us too. And I don't, I don't have any words except to ask for mercy. Because as much as I want to point out that other guy's injustice, I, I know that someone can point to me too. So Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We thank you. You do not deal with us as our sins deserve. But you are gracious to us. That we are declared by you to in your sight be righteous for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.